If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Renee Lassert, CEO and founder of Build.com, the leading provider of cloud-based software that transforms the way businesses pay and get paid. Renee founded Build.com in 2006 after recognizing that business owners needed a way to simplify payments so that they could focus on their business. Over 85% of the top 100 U.S. accounting firms use Build.com, and the company moves over $100 billion annually. Build.com IPO'd in 2019 and now has a market cap of over $20 billion. Renee is a fourth-generation entrepreneur and has over 20 years of experience in the finance, software, and payment industries. Prior to Build.com, he founded PayCycle, the first and largest online payroll solution, which was acquired by Intuit in 2009. Renee is a graduate of Stanford, where he received degrees in industrial engineering and quantitative economics. Renee, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. I've been a fan for a long time. Well, Alexa, thank you for having me. So we'll just start with the basics. Give us a sense in your own words. What is Bill.com? The most basic description of Bill.com is that we're an all-in-one financial operations. So we take everything that's in the back office, your AP, your AR, we automate it, digitize it. We take the back office, we put it in the back pocket. So that mess of paper, it's gone when you're on Bill.com. I mean, that sounds delightful. Um, To make it really clear to people out there who maybe aren't running a business and using Bill.com, what is the product experience? Just give us that in a few words. Yeah, maybe just I'll talk a little bit about why I started the company and how that need came to life for me, right? So uh, I was at my first company, which is an online payroll company, and I was trying to manage the back office, which is paying the bills and contracts coming in and collaborating with your employees, talking to your vendors and suppliers, working with your customers. And paper was everywhere. We had a horrible time managing it, right? And, and it's like I always joke that Everybody has a great college degree, but does anybody ever get taught filing? Nobody is good at filing, right? It's just first in, first out, filing cabinets full of a bunch of stuff. And so what I found is I didn't have the ability to kind of track all of that. And so Bill.com experiences, we take the paper, we digitize it. It can come in digitally, originally as an email or an invoice, but if it's paper, we'll let you take a picture with your phone. And then we route it, you know, using kind of the tools that you have at the trade today, cell phones and email, route it to people that need to touch it. They get to comment on it. Then when it's ready to be paid, we integrate with all the banking systems and manage all the money. So the money can flow easily. And if you're on the invoicing side, you never have to worry about going to the bank to deposit checks because the money just ends up in your bank account, right? So we automate all those processes and the processes are, are really pretty painful, right? I used to joke that, um, you know, in, in, at PayCycle in the first company, I had better chance of connecting with employees or vendors if I took the invoice and I folded up as a paper airplane and threw it across the office because people just aren't <laughs> waiting for me to come by and talk to them, right? And so that's what you need with collaboration tools. And that's what the web does. And that's what social 
uh, you know, media is doing from the consumer side. And we kind of do that for the business side. We connect all of the documents. We make it simple to do. Uh, we connect you with the payment systems. We integrate with the accounting software. All of that just becomes like second nature. So you can go run your business and do what you need to do. So one of my favorite facts about you is you grew up in a family of really founders. Your parents at, at one point, you know, six businesses, which is pretty wild. Where was the aha moment? Was it just such an obvious problem that you grew up seeing and you were like, why is there a paper airplane that I should just be flying? Because this is such a silly, you know, fully again, uh, paper problem. Where did the aha moment come from? And why do you think you were uniquely situated to go build this business now, almost 15 years in? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, originally when I started PayCycle, it was online payroll and it was 1999. So that was a good year to be thinking about the internet, right? That That's when things were happening. And back then the internet was really just the internet. It wasn't called the cloud. It wasn't, people weren't thinking about a central database with a central UI capability and the ability to customize the user experience for all the different types of users you have. So as I started building our online payroll solution, so that was 99, by 2002, 2003, I'm like, God, my paper process is holding me back. I have to go to the office you know, on a Friday. I have to look through a stack of 50 invoices and customer <clears throat> documents that need to get filed away. And all that stuff was kind of painful. And I started thinking, well, why can't that be digitized? And, and what is the problem solving? And then I realized the aha moment was, this is no different than what my grandfather did 60 years earlier. And my grandparents and my parents both started payroll companies and GL companies that leveraged data processing. The night I was born, my mom was sorting punch cards you know, for the largest defense contractor in DC. And it was a payroll job, a GL job, payroll. And so here she is, 110 pounds walking around. You know, I'm going to get born five hours later with a 50 pound punch card tray. And so like that process hadn't really changed. People were still managing all their processes with a very, you know, mundane, uh, cumbersome process. And so I, that was the aha. It's like, why hasn't this changed? You know, we've automated payroll. We've done all these things. I mean, ADP would be an example of payroll being automated. But why are people still managing invoicing and, and customer bills, you know, from a, you know, a manual process? And that was the aha, uh, probably 2003. So then I started noodling the idea in 2003. It's something like for me, um, when I'm stressed at, about work, to go to sleep at night, I pick a different problem to solve. Because if I solve the work problem, I'll be up all night because there's urgency to that. But if I solve a problem that's not something that has urgency to it, you know, within 30 minutes, I'll be asleep, right? And so and then I'd wake up the next morning and write down the notes. And so that just kind of went on for a few years. That's amazing that the small business of America owe this great idea to you needing to get back to sleep, <laughs> which is a, a pretty amazing thing. So if we step forward today, you're now moving over $100 billion or more annually by serving a really wide range of customers from small businesses to accountants to top banks. Can you talk us through those early go-to-market days? Right now, every founder in America who's building a software company is trying to think about go-to-market. What's the go-to-market motion? What did you learn from yours and how did you end up perfecting it? Yeah, I think in the early days, uh, I realized, since I grew up around SMBs, my parents served SMBs, they were an SMB. And I just have a passion and love what SMBs do. I drive up and down El Camino in California and they think about all the businesses that I will never go to, but they survive and they thrive. And that's just what's so cool to me about America, right? You got all these businesses doing their thing that's unique. And so, you know, for me, the passion around SMBs was I want to serve as many of them as possible. And it's not easy to serve all of them. So I wanted to go with a broad horizontal approach to go to market. And so 
to your point, you know, about, you know, that first initial go to market was like, I don't want to just build from one vertical. I want to actually build something that I want to thread that needle. That's the most common problem that all businesses have. And so that's how I started focusing. And then I realized that I can't reach all of them. I need partners to do that. Accountants are very well trusted as are banks. And so we've partnered with banks and, and accounting firms to be able to really drive you know, growth across the business. Uh, we also knew that the accounting software community was super strong and that we could be partnered with them and have better integrations. So it, it was kind of, you know, I think some of the early what the earning, learning was from PayCycle, but some of it was just the desire to be able to kind of serve the broadest market possible. And it's not, it's not something that's easy and it takes time. You mentioned 15 years, right? So 15 years you know, to get to the strength and position that we are in the market right now, not everybody has that patience to do that. And so, you know, I was willing to be committed to it and had investors that were willing to commit to that, that long-term strategy. Uh, and it's worked out for us at this point. Well, it surely has. Uh, and I know you're in some ways still just getting started. I want to just kind of rewind. You made a number of important strategic decisions to to get the company to where it is today, from building a network to a multi-pronged revenue model that combines subscription and transaction revenue. If you look back and think about, again, the last now, let's just call it decade, is there a single decision that you think really you can attribute a lot of your success to? Were there one or two? But what were the big decisions that you look back at and you say, wow, we really got that one right? Yeah, there's probably going to be a couple, right? It's kind of like, it's hard to always pick one. But I think the first we just talked about, having a broad go-to-market strategy and having a way to do that. Uh, I was fortunate because of the success in the prior company. I had relationships so I could go talk to banks. I had relationships with accountants so I could talk to them. Uh, but just being committed to those, those markets. I mean, our solution for accountants is different than our solution for SMBs. Our solution for the banks is different than our solution for accounts or SMBs. Now, ultimately, the SMB that they serve gets the same product experience across all of our channels, but we have to have layers to be able to support those different go-to-market approaches. And so building and designing a platform that's purpose-built to serve multiple channels in the ways that they want to be served, as well as the underlying SMB, that was a really important decision. And that's really hard work to do. That this, you have, It takes a lot of time to build the platform so that you can kind of do those layers on top of it. But then, you know, everybody says this, but your company is only as good as the people you have and the people you get are only as good as the culture that you build. And so really being focused on the culture has been super, super important. In fact, some of the ideas, you know, me laying awake at night, uh, 2004 or five and whatever, was me thinking about the culture. And so, you know, if, if we were to talk about the values, uh, you know, we all have values in our families. Most families don't have them on the walls. But, you know, if you were to ask your kids, you could say what's important to this family, they, they would have something to say. Then I went to I went to prep school. The values were in the stained glass windows. Then I went to college, no values around the campus, went toward the Pricewaterhouse, no values that I could see. Then I landed at Intuit and values were really present and, and, and really the company led with that. So when I started Pace Cycle, I brought, you know, values into the company. And then as I was running PayCycle, this is what me laying awake at night, uh, it's like, you know what, this isn't actually helping me run the company. We had great values, they're aspirational, but they didn't help me make decisions every day. It didn't help me do the right thing uh, to make the company grow and succeed in a different way. And what I realized is that aspirational values are very different than fundamental, you know, intentional values, if you will. And so the intention that, you know, I have around the businesses, I want to work with people that in our case, passionate, they're dedicated, they're humble, they're authentic, and they like to have fun together across those things. And if we hire people with those things, they can all go do whatever the hell they want, because it's going to be awesome. 
It's gonna, it's like the colors of a, of a, a these are the colors I give you to go paint with. And your painting is gonna be beautiful because I've already set the, the right colors. We've agreed, I shouldn't say I, we as a team have agreed on these are the colors that we want to play with. And all those colors are gonna be great together. And so doing that work ahead of time and really defining what it was that I needed to be a strong leader for the team, uh, which is those, those five values, um, that's really was super important. So I would say the broad platform and then the values, I mean, you gotta have that. Uh, I think another strategic decision was doing two acquisitions in less than 90 days this year, uh, or I guess you say last year now, right? So we closed Divi, <laughs> closed Divi and Invoice to Go in less than 90 days. And they're both super powerful and they're different. One is expanding our ability to really automate the spend management. Uh, and the other is expanding our ability to collect, you know, with Invoice to Go and the receivables. And being able to, and one has larger customers, the other one has smaller customers. Doing both, it's been stressful on the organization, but it's been really powerful. You have most recently made some obviously very big acquisitions. Uh, you know, I think Divi was you know two and a half billion dollars, so big swings. As a CEO, how do you think about expansion through acquisition, and what have you learned that has made you better about acquisitions? How do you think about what makes a successful acquisition, and how do you how do you run that? I think the last part, which I'll be back to the first part, is that intentionality always matters. You can't just swing, right? You have to be very thoughtful about what you want. And so for us, that intentionality starts with the customer. And, and it starts with understanding what are the customer pain points and what are the things they want. Sometimes customers don't know what they want, right? You look at the, the spend management space, which is what Divi is in. Uh, there's less than 30,000 businesses in the whole country that are using some type of automated spend management solution. So most SMBs don't even know about this. They don't even know that there's a way to actually simplify things. So you can't like go there. So then you have to go talk to your customers, which we have 125,000 plus. You go talk to them, you find out, well, is this a pain for you? It's like, oh yeah, yeah, all that charge spending, that's a real mess to manage. And I wish it could be as simple as bill.com. So you get data to support you and you're thinking that, hey, that's something that's gonna be valuable. And then you start thinking about if culture is important and the team's important, you start thinking about, well, you know, what are the teams like when we mix them together? And part of the thing that you look for in acquisitions is how can we augment the team? One of the things I love about what one of our values is being authentic. And one of the things that's important to me about authenticity is to let others in to be themselves. And so it's not like there's one way to be authentic, right? You and I are different. And yet we can be both, you know, love working together and have very different experiences, be on different political spectrums and still be good friends if you are truly authentic. And so having a culture that says embraces the authenticity of each other to come in and actually says if there's something in this culture that we think is really unique so for example i would say you know uh one of the the divi team is very focused on urgency that's something that everybody can always use the same is true of invoice to go they're very focused on urgency they're also focused on serving international customers which we kind of need more of and so you can bring that in and so the intentionality was what is it that we need as a company to continue to grow from you know, when we went public, it was trailing revenue was a little bit, you know, over $100 million in revenue. And now we're thinking the next order of magnitude, the billion, and then there's more from there to go. What do we need to grow to get there? And we need to bring more perspectives in, more products in, and, and having the intentionality around that and having the choice to build by partner is something that you have to be thoughtful about. And so when we looked at both of these companies, uh, there were just too many assets at play, too many ways to augment what we had built and the teams that we had. Uh, that it made sense. And so I would say the thing to learn is be very intentional. 
Don't just do something because you think, oh, that's interesting. It's like, no, what is it that's going to help your customers? What is it that, that you need from your own company to be successful? Uh, and how do those work together? If it makes sense, then you should do it. And, and you know, the big swings are hard, um, but we were pretty clear when we did the modeling and, and the integration work, you know, uh, in the acquisition discussions that there was a huge opportunity to do more together. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to shift gears to the fact that small businesses have been through truly a roller coaster through COVID. And you have had such a unique vantage point into what's really going on. Obviously, you get to see what's happening with, you're like watching all of the rivers underneath all of these businesses. Um, I would love just to get a sense of what are your biggest takeaways about COVID's impact on small businesses across America? How do you think about that? I think the the biggest takeaway is probably not just true for small businesses, um, but it definitely is true for small businesses. But I think true for people in general, resiliency. COVID's been a huge whack against everybody. And you know what? Generally, you talk to people, they're happy. They would like it to be different, but they're moving forward, right? And you look at the small businesses. We all had this fear in March of 20 that small businesses were going to collapse. And somehow they adapted. And we were part of that. We were happy to be part of that for our customers. Um, but they adapted and they thrived. And they give you a couple of examples here. So uh, WAG is the number one, well, at the time, it was the number one dog walking app in the country, well, people were home. They were starting to walk their dogs. They didn't need people, other people to walk the dogs. And so they used, you know, in part, they used the technology and we were a part of that to understand where they were spending, how could they shift their expenses quickly. So within 30 days, they shifted all their expenses. They saved some money to go open up a new program, which was basically online vets and online training. And that became a huge business for them. So less dog walking, but they pivoted. They had to because, and you know, they were able to do that because they had the technology resources. And so that's the type of resiliency that's super powerful. There's a, another example of a, uh, it's a, a library called the Meridian Library District. They're both a Bill and a Divi customer. They got five locations in the second largest city in Idaho, and they help thousands of users. Well, with COVID, people weren't coming in the library. So what do they do? They pivoted and said, you know, let's go deliver books, you know, to our customers. Let's deliver PPE, you know, to our customers. Let's actually stay connected to seniors. Let's, you know, stay connected to the child care centers. Let's actually make the community more possible. And they were able to do that in part because they had the technology for people to work from home, work remotely. And so I think the resiliency that people have, uh, and it comes through in an SMB. And so, you know, one of the things I talked about authenticity, and I, I don't always get agreement with this statement, but I think one of the most authentic things you can do is to start a business. And you've started one. When you put yourself out there, it is so risky, right? And and it is part, you know, you can talk to folks, and some people don't agree with this, but there is I, your I, part of your identity is in that when you do that. Like when you say, I'm going to go start Learn Best because I think this is what America needs. If it gets rejected, it's saying, no, you were wrong, right? If it gets rejected, it's saying, I'm wrong. And so there's a lot of risk in that, right? And so you're being very authentic 
And the only way you can do that is to roll with the punches and to be, you know, to be resilient. So I think that's the big takeaway. To me, it was awesome to watch. Uh, I had a lot of faith that SMBs, just watching my parents and grandparents grow up. I mean, the number of times, the reason there were, you know, my grandfather had over six businesses is he shut down a few and went bankrupt a few times, right? So like it, it and yet he's got right back up and started another one. And he just loved the experience. And so when you grow up with those stories, you know that that's just part of the community. And that's something that was exciting to, to see. One thing I want to just ask, you have such a unique perch being able to stare truly at the technology that it's impacting small businesses across truly all of America, Main Street, and now going beyond. Do you have any hypotheses, if you fast forward a decade, things that are obvious to you that are happening to this, you know, it, it, it's a third of the American uh, economy, by the way, it's just massively important to our country. How do you think about any major trends or any hypotheses that you have if we if we zoom out? So I think all entrepreneurs are optimists, right? I mean, you have to be. You can't say, I'm going to go put all this money of my own behind something, put this risk, you know, unless you believe that in the future. And so I believe in the future. I believe that we will solve the problems that need to be solved. I think we have big problems. And I think the, you know, the world's always had big problems. And so for me, when I look at this, you can't avoid and ignore science and technology, right? And so the evolution, you've just talked about what we do. People are going to move away from paper. It doesn't happen as fast as we would like. You know, people have been writing checks for you know thousands of years, but they are going to move away. It's such a better experience to move away from paper, to have everything automated in one place. And so, you know, whether it's that technology or you know, you, you could talk about lots of different ways that businesses, you know, ordering, if you go back to you know, uh, ordering takeout, like that's going to get to be so much better and so much more convenient. And so all these things are going to roll through. And my my advice to uh, entrepreneurs and small businesses is if you're not leveraging technology, then you need to be thinking about it because it's going to happen. And if you miss that, then somebody else will take advantage of it and you'll you'll have missed the boat, right? So technology, the pace of change is going to continue to increase, right? And if you just think about the the cloud is so powerful. And I think that's the, it just doesn't really describe and it's why you invest behind these types of companies. But that central database that gives you an ability to create a central UX and an experience for any infinite number of users that come in uh, and to share that data with the appropriate people, you know, to actually help those customers of yours, that's super powerful. And so there's going to be people constantly thinking about how do you leverage this new technology? Uh, and that's really leveraging the data. It's going to, and that's going to change how we do business. It's going to take many of the mundane processes that we have. And it's going to automate them. And it's going to let people get back to their artistic self, right? It's actually, it was interesting. I, I think, I, I think the name of the book was uh, Year Zero. I don't know if you've heard about this, but science fiction, right? And it's just interesting. And the concept here is that you go forward in the future and you know, evolved societies, uh, they're peaceful. Uh, and once and they've used technology, so nobody really has to do any work. So what becomes value in society is art. And art might be cooking, it might be music, it might be what comedy, it might be whatever. And just thinking about that is pretty powerful. Like we're not there in the next hundred years, but we are taking mundane tasks and we are automating them. And that's going to be throughout all parts of society. And so embracing technology, always embrace, don't run away from it. What I loved about that is just really a reminder how just absolutely powerful the cloud has become to what is possible over the next decade and the fact that the pace is picking up so quickly. You are in a business, it's payments. It matters that it is exactly accurate. How have you balanced 
the get it right and get it perfect and moving fast. And I would love just to get a sense of, was there any advice you would pay to other entrepreneurs managing risk that you have taken to building build.com? I think in general advice I would give on this front is you always have to embrace, embrace the challenges. And so this, so I, having been in payments, I knew that this was hard. I didn't start with all the payment products we have today. I started with, you know, the easiest one, which was sending a check on somebody else's bank account, right? Just printing the check form. We started with that to get the check printing figured out and getting you know, exposed to the payments. I started working with the banks. Then we started using ACH to move the money through our account. So you just, you, you have to embrace saying that is hard. I can't leapfrog all of it. I have to actually embrace it, get to know it. I have to build the teams that really understand it. I have to be regulated. We're licensed in all 50 states. We, we actually think it makes us better. You know, it's not something that we try to avoid, but like, no, 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 that's going to make us better. And by the way, the audits that come in, you know, on a monthly basis, they always find something that we weren't aware of because they found it from somebody else at some other company or some other bank. And so they tell us, we get to learn from all of these things to protect our customers and our investors. And so I think you have to embrace this. That would be the first thing. And then just take the time. You know, I, I, one of the things that I've learned is that being an entrepreneur is the, is the perfect balance of patience and impatience. It is the impatience that gets you to go do something because you believe that the world needs this now, but then it doesn't happen now. You have to be patient. You have to let people come. You have to get the right people. You have to get the right resources. You have to let the market develop. All of that is true. And every now and then as an entrepreneur, as a leader, you have to say, you know what? I'm tired of being patient. We're going to be impatient and we're going to go move this wall. Then you have to sit there and wait after you move it. Right. And so anyways, I think that's the, the thing with payments. You just have to be patient, but you have to embrace it. I love it. I, I call it L-I-T-T-P, lean into the pain. Yeah. You've got to know the problem. And I love that you call it embrace it. I want to transition uh, to you. As I said, you have this spark for entrepreneurship that really is multi-generational. Your grandparents, your parents. Give us a sense of what was the environment like that fostered to have somebody really as exceptional as you now building a massive publicly traded company doing extremely well Give us a sense of what was the environment like that gave you the ability to be so good? I appreciate you saying that. So thank you. <laughs> but I can tell you what it was like at home is that it was all fun. You just, I mean, like hearing them talk about their days. And, I, you know, one of the most important things is to talk, you know, have a dinner table conversation with their kids. Right. And so, you know, when my parents would talk about their days, they would tell us what was going on in their business, whether it was hiring or getting a new customer or a technology problem. And, you know, there were obviously challenges, but they weren't, it wasn't like they weren't having fun solving it all. And so that passion around helping customers, that passion around new ideas, uh, that's something that came out loud and clear. Uh, my dad, I think, was more of a product person. He really liked, you know, the technology and finance and accounting, and he really liked that. My grandfather was more of a salesman. Uh, if you looked at the businesses, he had everything from grocery stores to citrus to uh, farming equipment to car dealerships to you know data processing. He was more of a salesperson. So you take and you learn. One of the things I did learn, by the way, is that you have to embrace your strengths, right? So he was a salesman. My dad was really a technology guy, and he led with technology. He could sell because when you sell from the heart, it's actually I think easy for anybody to do that, right? Uh, and so he would go with his passion. He could sell that. Um, but it was, you know, different when you can sell anything. And, you know, we have, there are plenty of people in the family that are really excellent salespeople uh, that they're able to do that. And so taking your passion and leading with that, I think is super important. 
And I think that's something that I've tried to do is to really leverage what I care deeply about and to use that to fuel the company, right? So and product is something I care deeply about and customers obviously is the thing I care most about, uh, you know, and, and you know, when it comes to developing the right product for them. So I read an interview about you where you said your superpower is loving an unloved niche. How did you pick it? Tell us more about that quote, loving an unloved niche. I, I appreciate it intellectually and I'd love to get a sense of how you think about it. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, are, I don't, this is, may not be the right word, but afraid of SMBs because it's such a broad market and it's so hard to figure out. And, you know, it's it's the type of thing that SMBs require a lot of trust. Uh, you can't sell them, right? You can't reach all of them. You have to be able to uh, let them trust you. And so the, the unloved niche is that a lot of people go into it and they fail because they don't have the patience, they don't build the right uh, experience for the customer to be able to trade the trust that so they can have the word of mouth. And it takes time, right? It's taken us time to get to the scale that we're at right now. So I think it's a, everybody understands how big it is, you know, 30 to 50% of the US economy. Like, this is a massive demographic in our society. And part of the love for it is, and maybe I'll go to that, part of the love for it is that SMBs, I think, are the glue that make our communities. Right. So, I, I mean, we all take advantage of going to a Macy's or whatever to get the stuff that we know or Amazon, let's say, to get the stuff that we need to get. But what is the stuff that you're excited to come home to? My oldest kid now is back in college. And, you know, and so now when he comes home, it's like, OK, let's go to this restaurant or let's go to this thrift store. He likes to go thrifting. Let's go to this park, you know, that somebody supports because that's what he misses. These are the things that create a community, that create home, that create belonging. And SMBs are at the center of that. And it's one of the things that makes me proud to serve them and makes me so excited to serve them is that anything I can do to help that makes the world a better place, right? And, and makes us all have a little bit more joy in our life. And so that's where the passion comes from for me. And that's the love. Of the, and I would say the unloved is maybe, it might've been too strong. It's just an unknown. How do you go serve that market? And, and I think I'm fortunate that I grew up uh, in the business, you know, my parents and grandparents where I could see that you could serve it, you know, and you have to be patient. A lot of, a lot of people that go raise capital, they want the instant hit. Uh, this has not been an instant hit. We're 15 years in the making, right? And so it takes time. And I think that's something that is valuable for people to appreciate. I wish I had five hours to interview you, by the way. <laughs> there's, there's so many places I want to go. I feel like I have to end the interview literally on that note. <laughs> there's nothing that can surpass that. Um, first of all, Renee, thank you. Not just not only thank you for joining us. Thank you for like just inspiring me to do better at everything I do in my own life. And I'm sure everybody that is out there listening. And then everybody, if you're a small business and you're listening, head to bill.com, check out their incredible service. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alex Montobel. And again, Renee, thank you for being an honest mentor for all of us. This has been such a pleasure. Well, Alexa, this was so fun. Uh, anytime you want to talk, just give a ring. It'd be great. 